Very glad to be with you. We've been timing out our John series in such a way that we're getting to encounter Jesus and his resurrection as we head toward Easter, uh, totes on purpose. But I would add, <clears throat> with that, I, I think back about my own faith. And remember, John's a gospel of belief. He, he writes these things so that we would believe and in believing have life in his name. And I remember being around fifth grade and hearing the message of salvation and, and being intrigued by it and then being in high school or ninth or 10th grade and hearing it again and really wanting to follow Jesus. And uh, I had no idea that whatever that would be 20 some odd years later, I would be, be in a sense, you know, getting paid to talk about him with people. So that wasn't in the, that wasn't in the lineup of things that I thought I would be doing. It was a, it was a rather simple understanding that I had sin and Jesus seemed to be the answer to the problem that I had, and he was the only answer to the problem that I had. <clears throat> and so whatever belief I had at that time was small, but sufficient, because it's really the work of Jesus that is sufficient. As time goes on, and with every year that you spend in church, it's almost like the, just the more sure you become of what everybody needs to know. And so... Uh, we need to know all kinds of positions about your theology. We need to know whether or not you are, I mean, even the question like, well, are you, are you Calvinist, are you Arminian, are you this, are you that? Arminian, not Armenian, right? One is a position and one is a country, a people. So, uh, but we'll say Armenian a lot. Um, so we have all these start, things we start to do, and, 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 and what starts to happen, and you, you see it, and we don't even mean for it to happen, but it does. You've probably been in this world where people, you get together with people, and some of them have been in church for a while, and some of them are new to the faith, and they start talking about sermons they've heard, and books they've read, and, and people that they like, and influential pastors, and you start to go, I don't, I don't have any of those things. I don't have, I, I don't know what the who the most influential person is. And if you didn't grow up in the church or you, uh, you're not an avid podcast listener and you don't care that much about YouTube or other people's sermons, like you really feel like you're left out. Um, and, and, and it creates, un, unintentionally creates this divide where there's like there's super Christians who are aware of a lot of things. And then there's us. And, and the rest of us just kind of go, well, I don't really, I, don't, I can't keep up with that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know all those things. And I seriously, like, I, I have people, they'll do this to me, and like, I just, I feel like the biggest dolt in the room. We're like, well, you know what the Bible says in that verse, right? And I'm like, remind me. Like, I, like, like, I, you know, so I know, but I just want to be sure you know. Like, are we talking about the same thing? Yeah, you know, like, like, we have all these things that we start to do when it comes to all these truths about Jesus. And, and we feel real certain that we have to raise our children to, like, be able to do the Westminster Catechism. Like, like, you know, and so we have all these things that we, we say, like, we, I'm going to give you questions, and you're going to give me answers, and this is, this is what we're going to do, and, and, and our kids can do it, and then they're still going to punch their sister in the nose, and, like, and you're like, wait a minute, you don't understand what the chief end of man is, like, you, you didn't do that thing the right way. And always, it always becomes about knowledge at some point in time and the precision of that knowledge. And we start to critique that knowledge and what people know and what people don't know. And if that's not you, I, mean, I had a buddy, you know, he, he's a very learned man, and he was pastoring in rural Illinois for a long time. Now he's in Lafayette, which is you know, rural Louisiana. Uh, if you're from Baton Rouge, you can say that, but um, it's not rural. 
And so now he's in Lafayette pastoring, but he had a, a man who he thought was just rather non-smart that he was trying to disciple, and he was a farmer, and he wasn't that he was not smart, it's that he didn't read well. And because he didn't read well, and he was trying to ha- get together with him and read the Bible, he had no idea how to train this farmer. And then he realized, if I could just get you to listen to the Bible, you now know it better than I do. Because he had spent his whole life learning through hearing, not learning through reading. And like that, that's not some old story. That happened to my friend Michael. Like, like, it, like he passed around a guy and go, how do, I, how do I help this guy when like Michael's telling this story in PhD seminars, right? Like, like, this is, it, like, the, like the worlds are in totally different spaces. But we do such a good job of making people feel small for not knowing lots and lots of things about the Lord and, and really feeling like outsiders. And this is why I love the Gospel of John, because John could be a kiddie pool or it could be an ocean in regard to how you talk about it, and both of them matter. Both of them matter, and they matter both for the one who's been in church for 50 years and the one who's been in church for five minutes. What John has for us is that significant, and the way that the Spirit inspired and empowered John to write this gospel helps us realize both how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed, and understanding he who has the Son has life in First John. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So we're going back to belief today. We're going back to belief next week. And really all we've been, so many of the applications of John are, we should probably believe this. The longer we live, the more complex and precise our expectations are on what we should be about. And especially in like Bible Belt, Houston area, you can, like, you'll spend a lot of time, especially being in churches a long time, like, like shopping church doctrinal statements. Like, well, I, I want to see how you do this. I want to see how you do that. I want to see how you do that. I want to see how you do that. And those, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a fan of doctrine. But they can really become uh, hidden ways to be really arrogant and, and really sure of yourself and ways to pit yourself against other churches other brothers and sisters, and because you're superior and you're better and we really know what it's like. And that grieves me uh, because if you get into places where you're around people who go to churches that you wouldn't believe some of the things that they might say or some of the precision areas of doctrine and you realize they're great, you, now you've got a problem because you're like, well, shoot, I'm not supposed to like you. John reminds us of this. John reminds us that, that there's something simple about the gospel that we should embrace. And it's who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. What types of expressions here in John chapter 20 do we see about that as people are encountering an empty tomb and most of these people haven't put two and two together yet? We go, how in the world could you do that? Because that's how it works. Because, because that's the faith. We don't get how these things work sometimes. And so you have Mary and you have Peter and you have John. You have three characters who are introduced at the empty tomb And each of them has a different response to what they are seeing. These responses probably align with some way you and I have responded at some point in time. And it would be nice to be able to kind of go back and recall those at times. And so we have Mary, Peter, and John. We're going to figure out what this means for us. I do think that we're trying to get to the position of John here. Like we're, trying, we're trying to get to where John is, assuming that John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's a lot of consensus there. Not everybody agrees. be glad to talk with you about it. But in general, the consensus is John is the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He just won't reference himself 
in that kind of way. It kind of gives veiled attempts. And you realize Paul does the same thing. He's like, I know of a man who went up into like the third heaven. And like, so he doesn't, he doesn't say it's him, and he, but he talks about the person, um, which is, I don't think it's false humility. I think it's the way writers then would try and talk about themselves in stories while not making themselves feel like the main character, feeling like it was really about them. So we're going to go in that order, Mary, Peter, and John. What types of expressions do we find as people are encountered with the truth that Jesus rose? We're going to do this one first, Mary. We're going to get to see her this week and next week because she gets to have another encounter. She's the first one to see Jesus, right? Like, like she gets to be the one that, that Jesus speaks with in, in that regard. And John introduces us to her now. And we actually don't know much about Mary Magdalene, but what we see in her is that she's both caring she cares about what's going on, but she's fearful, and she's not fearful about Jesus. She's fearful about what happened to Jesus. So her assumption in her mind at this point in time, like probably ours would be, is, I don't know where he is. It's not he rose. That's not where her mind is. It's, I, I need to care for him, and I don't know where he is. Caring, but fearful. Let's just start with who she is. A lot of people have, a, there's a lot of folklore about Mary Magdalene. And if you watch movies, they kind of present her to be like a harlot. Like, like they really try to make her to be, what we know from Mary Magdalene, we know from Luke 8. And in Luke 8, we see this. And this is something cool that, tells, that we see about the ministry of Jesus. She's a follower of Jesus, and Jesus healed her. Soon afterward, this is Jesus, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, I love this passage because... Jesus and his, his guys get, like, they're kind of front and center as things goes on. But you don't realize that around the ministry of Jesus, while it is happening, are these people who are supporting the ministry of Jesus. Like, they're actually, they're providing money, and they're providing food, and they're just being sure that they have what they need. Which, it, it doesn't surprise me that this is a long list of women, because that, that's so often how women are. It's like, do you have what you need? Are you taken care of? We were sitting at a dinner on Friday night, and Courtney was talking to another mom in the neighborhood, and it was so funny because they were talking about morning routines as the kids are getting up. And we were sharing one of ours, which, which if, if we said it out here, you'd just laugh at us, uh, but just stuff we do when your kids are groggy and you want to you be caring toward them. And, and the, our neighbor's laughing at us. And then, she's, and then she tells the story of what she does. She's like, well, since you told your story, I'll tell my story, and we start to hear about morning routines of our families, and it's just ridiculous, and it's all led by women who love their kids. That's really what it is, and just sweet and kind and thoughtful things that happen. Me, I'm like, get up. It's like, Dad, this is stupid. Why, where's mom? I'm like, you know, like, like, and so you have Jesus who's healing. There's so much more to the ministry of Jesus than are written in the Gospels. And Mary Magdalene is somebody Jesus healed. And she became, I would assume, to be a, a lifelong servant of the Lord. And she's actually, when you're reading the Gospels, Mary and Joanna and Susanna and many others are around Jesus' ministry. And so she's one of those. She's also with Jesus 
at his crucifixion. If you remember John 19, 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. We said that could be two people, that could be four people. I think it's four people. It's his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So I would say there are four people that are there by the cross. And who are there? John's kind of somewhere as well, but women who are invested in Jesus' life. They're there. And so she's a follower of Jesus who's been healed, and she's tending to his body at his death, doing what she can. We read last week about Joseph and Nicodemus doing what they could. They had means, they had status, they had connections, doing what they could. Now, something that's, that I love about the Gospels is that they put Mary at the tomb. All of them put Mary. Mary's there, right? We see Mary around. And we said Joseph of Arimathea is there. And it's interesting because if you, if you know anything about historical uh, testimony, a woman's testimony was not carried with the same level of weight that a man's would. So they, but they all, no one's trying to hide who's there. There, no one's going, well, gosh, could we put a dude there? Like, if we put a dude, like, that would be, more people would believe it if we put a man there. Uh, so let's go ahead and change the detail. No, like, that's what happened, and that's what they put, and she was there. Now, she's tending to the body of Jesus. She wasn't coming because she thought, like you do on, like, you know, well, let's just get up early and get our stockings. Like, everything's going to be different. I, she had no real thought about resurrection at this point in time. She's doing what she could, which is to go back to the tomb. She's grieving the loss of Jesus. That's what she's doing. She, yeah, there's, there's nothing she can do there. The assumption would be that the stone is still in front, and nobody moving that stone, right? Like, Mary don't have the strength to do it. We don't have the strength to do it. That is a big, circular rock. Most of us can't lift a bag of mulch without pulling our back. There's no chance that Mary's going to be rolling this stone away. So what is she doing but going there to do what she can? Right? Like, like, the, like the, the, the mom at a hospital bedside where you just tidy it. Like, like there, I, can't, I can't fix this, so I'll just clean and I'll just, I'll just do things. And so what is she doing but she's there? Verse 1, on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, she came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And whatever she had planned to do had now been changed. Because the stone was rolled away. It had been taken away from the tomb. And so she did what she knew to do, which was, I'm going to go to more people who know who Jesus is. She ran to the tomb, or ran, ran to Simon and Peter and the other disciples. She ran and went and told them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. So you can see where her mind is. She cares about Jesus. She's fearful of what happened, not because she thinks that Jesus has risen, but because she thinks that Jesus is missing. There would be a thought that perhaps grave robbers had come. If you go look in ancient tombs, very few of them are intact because somebody had found them over the past thousands of years and taken whatever was valuable out of them. We love the show, like I think it's, it's a destination unknown now, destination to do with Josh Gates, and he's always going places and like looking for whatever. They, they do a great job of like showing you, like, oh, and the, the music gets real intense. They're going into the tomb, and they find it. And they find really cool stuff, but they don't find a ton because somebody in like, you know, year 300 BC got in there first and took it all. And so you, and like other people actually come and take the bodies out and bury their own people in those tombs. Or like, 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 and so what does she think? What would be common is somebody did something. And you can hear that in her voice. They've taken the Lord. 
They have taken the Lord, which shows that she's not, not, not kind of aware of what should be going on here. That's like all of us. I don't know where they've laid him. So her, her mind is still going. I'm not sure what this is. She was more curious about grave robbery than resurrection. She ran straight to the disciples, and she's concerned about what goes on. And then we see the, the change. John's going to talk to us about Peter and John, those whom Mary ran to and told. And you get to see Peter here. They have a foot race uh, there. So, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I don't know if he held that over Peter for the rest of their days. I don't, I, like, I, like, 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 I don't know why that spirit-inspired detail is in there. I uh, just want you guys to know, Peter, I always beat you. Like, you started out ahead, but you weren't fast enough. You needed a little more hit training uh, in order to have lasted all the way to the tomb. But you can see what would be going on, which is we have to get there. We have to get there and see what had gone on. I don't think they have this assumption again of resurrection because this is like all of us when our kind of hearts are darkened, our minds aren't thinking straight. I woke up my, my kid on Friday night because we put eye drops in at night and I, he came, I came home and he was asleep. And so I was like, hey, we got to do the eye drops. Uh, and he was like, you know how kids are? And like, you are. He's like, where are we? The first thing, where are we? What's going on? It's, it's that, it's the, and, and you are so sure you're so sure in those five seconds after you wake up that you are like in a cave. I'm, I'm here to like kidnap you. Everything's terrible. And you're like, what is going on? And then all of a sudden you, you're like, oh, okay, put the eye drops in. Now I'm going to bed. And then something happens. Well, it's, it really is similar in regard to the Christian life where we live in this world where we think we know what reality is. And then all of a sudden when we encounter Jesus, we go, oh, oh. That's, that's what it means to follow. That's what it means that Jesus, okay, I had been living in kind of a fantasy world that I thought was the real world. I thought that's how things worked. I thought that's how it was. But no, this is different. And so they run to the tomb, and we see Peter. And Peter, I, I call him astonished and curious. But he's not, he's not believing. He's just kind of in shock at what's going on. And so Peter is, is astonished and he's curious. He stoops to look in. This is John. He saw the linen cloth lying there. John doesn't go in. So John gets there first, looks in. What if the bad guys are still in there? I don't, I, I don't know what he's thinking, but like, I don't, I'm not going to go in. There's also the concern of, of defilement when you go into a... Uh, you go into a place where a dead body is supposed to be. And so whatever is preventing John from going in, we know Peter. Peter has, like, no self-control. And so he's going to go in, right? Like, I mean, Peter, Peter's motto in life is, like, do it hard. Like, whatever it is, right? If you're going to do it, just do it. And so he goes after it, and he's like, well, I'm going in. And so now I'm sure Peter holds this against John because John got to the tomb first, but he was too much of a coward to go in. So Peter's like, well, I got that on you. He came in, and he went into the tomb, and this is what he sees. And this, is a, this is a weird situation, because if you remember, like, Lazarus comes out, and Lazarus is like a mummy, right? He's kind of coming out with, like, cloths on him. We don't know what happens when something dies perishable and it's raised imperishable. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, there's all these conversations about the, the resurrected body and what it becomes. And so... 
There'll be some who would think as they see that there's linen cloths there and there's a face cloth which is somewhere else and it's folded up and it's just sitting there. And so Peter's trying to make sense of what's going on and there's this word where he's just like, he comes in, he went into the tomb, he saw them there. He's looking, he's observing what he sees, but he's just kind of like, huh, and there's this idea in Peter's looking that he really is staring at it. And he's just trying to make sense of what happened. It's like the end of Inception. And you're like, oh my gosh, is it going to fall? Is it going to fall? Right? If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. Uh, and so the top is just spinning and spinning and spinning. And you're just waiting to figure out what's going to happen. And you're staring at it. You're, st- you're looking. But you really aren't sure if it's going to fall or not. You just have all your opinions on it. Well, Peter has this kind of idea. He has this gaze locked on burial cloths. And he's trying to go, what is this? What is this? He's stunned. He's amazed. He's staring. He's astonished. But he, he's not connecting the dots. Again, this is why salvation is an act of God. It's not an, it's not, not an act of us. Because as we stare at things, and we just go, I just don't understand how this works. I don't understand the connection. I, don't, like, I'm just, I just don't get it. So you have Mary who is tending to the body of Jesus. Not like you go, well, when were they saved? When were they not? Not worried about this part. Because the events in which you believe are happening like in time right now. The resurrection is happening. We believe that it happened. They're encountering what Jesus had said would happen, and they're trying to understand why it's happening in the order that it is. And so they so Peter sees and he looks in these stairs and there's burial claws. And it almost seems as if the burial claws are there in such a way that, that this is how D.A. Carson even put it, that he somehow like his resurrection, he didn't res like the body didn't reanimate in the claws. Like it's now and it, it came out differently. Um, and you're like, well, how did that work? Like, I don't know how that worked. It's just like just like I don't know how everybody whose bodies are now like decomposed will be resurrected. Are you gonna be resurrected like from there? We all have all those questions about resurrection. Like, well, so are you like, how are you gonna get out of the ground? Or how are you gonna get out of the tomb? Or how are you gonna do this, right? Like, I don't think God's too worried about that detail. Like, you know, like if we get reanimated, like do we, are we stuck? Do we have to knock on the outside? Like, hey, can somebody let me like like what's gonna happen here? And so what do you but this is this, this is like how I view Peter's mind. He's like, wait a minute. Right? Like, why, if you're going to take a body, why would you take it without the cloth on it? Because that would be gross. And so why would you steal a body and leave the cloth? Why would you fold the head cloth? Like, why, like you can even see the arrangement of the details to just make you curious about what's happening here. Why is that folded? I mean, like, the first thing I think about when I get out of bed is not, I should make the bed. Now, that might be some of you. But it's not like, you know what I should do right now? I'm going to get out, I'm going to make it. Uh, like, I just kind of go, golly, you know, that's like, the, you, go, you look at it, you go, I should probably take care of that. And so Peter's trying to put the details together. There's this empty tomb and there's these burial cloths. And what is this? Whatever concern at that point in time John had about defilement, confusion, worry about stepping in. Now that Peter went first, John's happy to go second. And so we see John. Peter has given this sustained attention, and we see John, and he sees and he believes. He wants to go in. Fears of what's going to happen are gone. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, just don't forget it, Peter. Now he went in, and he saw, 
and he believed. So we see it a different, it's almost like the, the kind of of the empty tomb, kind of this climactic moment in regard to these three, Mary, Peter, and John, in regard to how they are viewing it. So John walks in, he sees, and he believes, and then he tags on something about all of them. Verse 9, for as yet, up to that moment, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. As yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Well, this is an interesting one. Because you're like, wait a minute, well, did you believe or not believe? And in what did you believe? And how did you believe it? Aha, this is where our precision about what people should and shouldn't know becomes so important. Because as John has been a gospel of belief, and we have seen even all the way back to chapter 2, people believing in Jesus because he turned water into wine. And that seemed kind of cool. Jesus is the guy you bring over for party tricks. And if you want to have something cool happen at your party, you should probably invite Jesus. I just had recently rewatched the Count of Monte Cristo. And, you know, like, seems like a cool dude. Like, like I want to go to a party hosted by him because cool stuff's going to happen. You're going to have fire breathers and, you know, like, like hot air balloons come down and all kinds of cool aerial acrobats. It's going, to be a, it's going to be a blast. So if you want to have something cool happen at your party, bring Jesus. And that's why John says, even in chapter 2, they believed in Jesus. Jesus didn't believe in them. That's the language. He didn't entrust himself to them because he knew it was in the heart of man. And then as Jesus does more work and he, has, he does healings and he makes, he makes food show up when you don't have enough and he's feeding people and all these things are happening and every, like, the, like the, the interest in Jesus grows and grows and grows and he seems to always be squashing it because they're interested in a king who can do stuff for them. And any time the desire to be with Jesus is based on the fact that Jesus is going to do something cool for them, or he seems like the popular guy, or he's the one that you really want to get on that train early because we're headed to conquering this world with this man. Anybody who has that kind of thought, Jesus is very quick to then turn the tables on them and be like, okay, you really want in? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they're like, huh? What, in the world? what do you mean? Eat your flesh and drink. And then they leave. All these people who thought that Jesus was the next greatest leader, the one they're going to vote for, the one in whom they should put all their trust about all their political and cultural aspirations, anytime that starts to grow, Jesus either leaves, says something really confusing, or basically tells them he doesn't want them around. Like all, That's just what he always does. And now John believes, and there's no Jesus. There's, there's not something that has happened in regard to like, Jesus hasn't done something cool. As far as Mary and Peter are concerned, they're just kind of looking and marveling and wondering, but they haven't made the connection. And John steps in and he sees and he believes. And then there's this line in verse 9, but he didn't yet understand the scripture. For as yet they didn't understand the scripture that he would rise from the dead. So in what is John believing? Glad you asked. It's pretty simple. John saw an empty tomb, and he believed that Jesus rose. That's it. Like he saw an empty tomb, and he believed that Jesus rose. And he still was ignorant about what verse it fulfilled. Like He just wasn't sure. 
I don't, I, 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 I still don't understand. The spirit hasn't come. I haven't gotten a full understanding. Jesus is going to instruct the disciples in his resurrection for 40 days before he tells them to wait and pray and the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. All of that is still to happen. But John is essentially, I think, in this going, I've seen enough. I've seen enough. I believe. And there's this great, for me, this great comfort to realize that when you've seen enough and you believe, you still don't have to be able to answer everything. This is sometimes in our evangelism, because we've been talking, even as I shared earlier, we want to invite people in and include them in our lives. And we have this concern that if we do that, the people we invite, the people we might share Christ with, are going to ask us questions that we don't know the answer to. Great when I'm in class and people ask questions that I don't know the answer to, I just go, well, what do you think? Like, that's my classic, like, what do you, th- like, how would you put this together? And then as students start to answer it, I start to land on my answer, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. let me kind of bring this to a close, guys. You don't have to know the answer. Maybe you grew up in a tradition that says something like this. You, you'll know the phrase. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Anybody grew up saying that or saying something like that? Yeah, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Our love, sometimes lust for getting doctrine just precise enough to make somebody else feel like an idiot. All the ways you want people to defend something, talk about something, do something right. In all these things we begin to do, we can lose. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. We can lose that. And in that, confuse people who want an answer to what's going on with their life. Well, how do we handle this? How do we do this? But how do I deal with this thing going on in my marriage? Or this thing going on in my family? Or this thing going on in my child? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. It seems like an odd fit if you're playing Tetris. It's like that's always coming. That block's always coming down, and I'm not sure how to fit it into my problems. You're like, that's okay. That's okay because in our life, we have to make main things main things. This is why Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. And it's confusing, and people stumble over it, But for those whom God is calling, it is life. John sees and believes, but it doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that your knowledge about everything is going to be locked right then and there. It doesn't mean that what you will learn and how you will grow and and, and like all of those things, you'll have your whole life in Christ to be building up and tearing down and undoing and redoing and learning and growing and shifting. But remember, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come. And what does Peter see but an empty tomb? And he's not having a Bible study on Isaiah 53 at this time. He's not considering all the details of what that prophecy might mean for this moment. He's not, like, like, even, it's funny, all these passages about Jesus rising according to the scriptures, do you know that really nowhere in the New Testament, do you give a treatise on the Old Testament passages about Jesus rising from the dead? Like you don't, you don't get it. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul will say, For I gave to you what was the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And sometimes you're like, What scripture? I like, like, give me chapter and verse, I need it. But you look at comments about resurrection, new life. Peter will use this in Acts chapter 2 about how the king's gonna be different. He's like, David's dead. 
So he must not be talking about David. He's got to be talking about another Davidic king because that guy's decaying still. He's only going to keep decaying. And so there's these hopes of resurrection, these verses that are there. But very infrequently do you get all these dots connected. And I just want to say, be glad because we have to lock into these main things. And as we lock in and as we walk with the Lord, we begin seeing things that we hadn't seen before. John knows more at the writing of this passage, of, the, of this, John 20 for us. He knows more when he's writing this than he even writes. Isn't that crazy? Like he's not even putting those details in there, even though he could flex on us right now, his knowledge, and he doesn't. He still just keeps it simple. He could have very easily said, for as yet, which kind of hints that they did get it in time, as yet they did not understand. I mean, do yourself a solid, John. I mean, I'm all about citation. Put some footnotes in that, baby. Drop that information in the footnote so the one who wants to do more research can do it on their own. But he didn't even do that. And he could have. And the Spirit could have inspired that. But he didn't. What do we have? John seeing an empty tomb and John believing. Now, do not get me wrong. This is not a mystical faith. Because you might, you might go, oh, well, just, you know, just belief is all that matters. No, this is a belief in a real event that happened to a real person at a real point in time that really changed the world. So, so there is not like, oh, yeah, you just, you know, just believe. Well, believe in what? Right? There is content to what is believed. Christ died, Christ rose, Christ will come. Like It is about a person and what happened to that person and what that person is doing. So it is not just, oh yeah, I don't like, you know, my pastor said like whatever you believe doesn't really matter. I didn't say that. What you believe does matter, but it's simple. But they are real events that happened in real time, that changed real people. I've shared before, this has been a while ago, a theologian named Tom Oden. Tom Oden died, I can't remember, uh, eight, ten years ago. We were talking about this at the elder meeting, and I had to be like, yeah, I read this book one time, and it's probably the densest book I've read on theology. And I don't, If you look in my three-volume work there, not my, mine, his, mine. I don't have a three-volume anything. Uh, I have a lot of pencil marks in it that I don't remember, but it was interesting because what changed Odin, Odin's trajectory in life, was the wrong kind of ecumenicalism, which was like everything's kind of okay. We need to combine as many people as we can into the faith. He was really uh, a child of liberal faith, liberal Christianity. That's what he wanted. Is like is believe whatever can include the most people was his kind of desire. And what changed him? It was interesting. What changed him? It was the authority of the Scripture, but let me, this is interesting. The authority of the Scripture as believed by, like, the apostolic fathers and the ancient church. Now, this is why that's interesting. is because he started to look at them and go, if they were willing to die for what was written about Jesus, they must have taken it pretty seriously. They must, they must have thought it was real. And if they thought what was written was real enough to die for, that's better than whatever kind of world I'm living for myself over here. And so he had dedicated the rest of his life and the rest of his scholarship 
to helping people understand historically the truths that all Christians have believed. The things that unite true faith from false faith. And I love it. And the reason he has a three-volume systematic theology is because it's Father, Son, and Spirit, because you've got to do stuff like that. But it's pretty cool. And so he writes about each of those, and he's tying in all these references. It's probably, as far as I know, like the best historical reference of all of the people throughout time that have written about these same ideas in the faith. It's a real faith that really happened, that changed real people, and it changed them enough that they were willing to really die for it. History talks about John's death, Peter's death, Paul's death. It at least doesn't seem historically that the apostles and the, you know, the, and the disciples who were sent out, uh, even though they kind of fall off the scene, it doesn't really seem like they embraced a gracious, extravagant life and died fat and happy. Uh, they seemed to die at the hand of others more often than not. Jesus even says this about Peter. Somebody's going to take you where you don't want to go, and you're just going to go with them, and that's how you're going to die. Like, like Jesus is talking to Peter before the church is even founded about how he's going to die for him. There aren't many events... There aren't many events that change people forever. And some of the ones that should change us forever even still don't. I think about parenthood. How many people have a child and then, like, they kind of stop thinking about it? It's very transformative for a season, but I, I, even in the room, we can probably point to bad examples of bad parents. You just go, why didn't... Why didn't, why didn't this matter? Why, did, why didn't I matter to you more than I did? Why, why, why is this where it is? Right, right? Even that, even pivotal moments that have changed people haven't changed them forever, but the resurrection changes people forever. Mary is going to believe. She already is there, surrounded by what's, what's going on in her mind. And, and it will find next week that as the other disciples are running to the tomb, Mary's not far behind because as they go back, the camera pans back and there's Mary at the tomb again. That might be you even this morning where you just go, gosh, this Jesus thing sounds great. It really does. It just sounds great to be forgiven and to have life and to have joy and to have hope and that he rose. That sounds too good to be true. And so you just kind of keep peeking into the tomb just to go, golly, is it, is it there? Is he there? Is he not there? I just can't. I mean, what do I look under here? Like, is he there? All these ways that we try to look. And then what does she do? Preview of coming attractions. Jesus shows up. And she doesn't even know it's him because she's so, she's so stricken by grief and what she thought was going on that it takes him, wait, wait, wait for it. He just has to go, Mary. And it's just like, boom. And there was no, Mary, are you aware of the hypostatic union? Mary, do you understand three persons, one essence of Trinitarian theology? Mary, like it's Mary. That's it. That's it. And then she just doesn't want to let go of him. 
That's our faith. We encounter a risen Lord and we don't know how everything connects and we're not even really sure, but at any given time and in any way, with it, whatever the pressure, whatever the hurt, whatever the harm, whatever the sin, whatever the ugliness that we're feeling, we can just go to Jesus and just say, I don't, I don't get it, Lord, but I love you. For us, like I said, we have Mary, Peter, and John it brings us to John's response. Even if you can't do the math, even if you don't understand the mechanics, even if it sounds too good to be true, believe that Christ rose. For the Christian in the room who has believed that Christ rose, Jesus' resurrection assures your resurrection. And your resurrection being assured changes how you view your ailments and your pains and your hurts because that's not the body you have forever. You get a resurrected body that's raised imperishably. So even as we believe that Christ rose, and that might be the once and for all for our salvation, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, even believing that Christ rose has implications for the Christian today because it means that we did. This is the whole argument of 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ rose, then this. If Christ didn't rise, then we're just playing games. That's his argument. The church is just a fun game that you don't even need to be playing if Christ didn't rise from the dead. So are we playing games or are we worshiping a risen Lord? Because if for us this is a game, you don't have to come back. There are more fun games that you can play than playing church. Believe me. Like, I wish I could play them, but I'm here. I don't really wish I could play them either. But church doesn't really do fun well. So I'm just saying, if you want to actually play more fun games, they can happen in other places. But that's not what we try to do here. And we don't try to do that here is because we can't even manufacture the kind of fun the world would want you to have. We preach Christ crucified. We believe Christ rose. And it's changed us. And it's changed us on our worst days, and it's changed us on our best days. Because if Christ rose, then the death, his death was indeed the full payment for my sin. Had he just said, it is finished on the cross and there was no resurrection, that's like any other dead person saying it is finished at their death. It didn't mean anything. So if it were just, it is finished and no resurrection, he's just a crazy man. If he claims it is finished and there is resurrection, then everything he said matters. I actually heard, this is a recording artist said this one time, who kind of wandered away from the faith and it was like, do you even believe that Jesus is real then? Like, is Jesus even, is he even a real man? Is he even, did you even think he walked on this earth? And he was like, I'm not even going to go there. And the reason he said that is he's like, because if he did, like, I can't believe that his followers just changed all his words to make them as significant as they are. I can't take some percentage of what Jesus said and say that was real and some percentage of what Jesus said and say that's not just, that's intellectually dishonest. So I'm not even going to say that 
Because if I did, if I even believe part of what he was was real, then I'm probably going to have to believe all of it was real. And I appreciate when atheists are more honest than Christians, right? Like, like, like where they just kind of say, nope, I'm not, I'm not even going to go there. Because the claims that Jesus made are too spectacular for me to try and slice and dice them. So he either did what he did or he didn't. But I'm not going to try and guess what he did over here. It's either all of that or none of that for me. If Christ rose, then his death was the full payment, and the resurrection verified all that was said and all that was taught and all that was spoken. And next week we get to see that personally in the life of Mary when Jesus finds her in her grief and transforms her into one who sees him. Believe that Christ rose. That truth changes us.